Support comes from USC Online, providing exceptional online graduate programs, certificates, and upskilling for current and aspiring professionals. Explore your graduate options today with the University of Southern California at online.usc.edu. I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, California may be famous for its love of youth and an endless summer, but for renowned traveler and author Pico Iyer, the traditions and wisdom rooted in Japanese culture are a big part of why he's made Japan his chosen home. Tradition may be more important as an anchor and a guide than endless possibility. I was leaving the world of endless summer for a place that understands the importance of autumn and, and winter and the cycles of all the seasons. And one of the trendiest philosophies to emerge from Japan recently is something called ikigai. But what does it actually mean? Ikigai can be focused on something very small, some small hobby or small set of interests or even a form of attention. So being able to observe the birds in the garden through the window, that very kind of modesty in it seems to be quite important. What we can all learn from the Japanese art of happiness. That's coming up on Life Examined. It's no coincidence that we've talked a lot on this show about seeking joy, happiness, and gratitude. Bombarded with distractions, perhaps sleep-deprived, and increasingly stressed and anxious, we're navigating, though sometimes barely, through a world that's fast-paced and relentless. So when it comes to taking a breath, focusing on our well-being, and recalibrating our lives, it's worth re-examining some of the ancient wisdom coming from one of the world's oldest and most unique cultures, Japan. The Eastern philosophy that dominates Japanese cultural traditions very much centers itself on a strong sense of community, unlike here in the U.S. where individualism is revered. Japanese people, for the most part, know and support their neighbors. And when it comes to aging, older members of Japanese society are respected for their wisdom and maturity. So just how are older Japanese people cared for by the community and each other? And why is an embrace of impermanence so significant? For traveler and author Pico Iyer, Japan, quote, instinctively felt like home. Born and raised in England, Iyer spent much of his younger adult life in New York and California before he moved to Japan 36 years ago. And the more time he spends there, he says, the better. Pico Iyer is an essayist and author of numerous books, including most recently, The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. And I should mention that he was one of our first guests on the program and remains one of the most frequent. I highly suggest searching our archives for more of our conversations. All that being said, Pico Iyer, it's always great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Always a delight to be here. You know, you and I have discussed, I think briefly, your love of Japan. But, but I want to start with this question of you as a world traveler, having been to so many places, having reported from so many continents, um, that you had instinctively felt there was something about Japan that felt like home. And I wonder if you could just just drill down there for a second. What, what is it about arriving to Kyoto felt kind of so, so interesting and also home-like to you? I think it was partly just this mysterious sense of recognition that as soon as I, I spent my first morning in Japan walking around, in fact, near the airport in Tokyo, not a, an obviously interesting or romantic place, I felt I know this place and this place knows me. And unless I spend time here, I will feel an exile for life. But I think one thing that strikes me now, looking back after 36 years living there, is that Japan still, to me, feels more like another planet than anywhere else on Earth. And I would still maintain it's the most unique and distinctive place I've ever been, that China and South Korea and its neighbors fit into a global network, and Japan, for better or worse, lives by its own rules, which makes its effect on many of us very striking. I think in my case also it really helped that I'd I'd grown up in England, and Japan has a lot in common with England, but for me, as an English-born person, Japan is always somewhere I can never understand, and, and, and intriguing and impenetrable in a way that... England can't be. So it struck me as kind of an exotic home. Uh, The scale of things, the hierarchy, the island mentality was all something that was familiar to me and and the reticence um, that people exude. But uh, it was not something I would never take for granted. The way when I'm in England, I feel I sort of know this place and I know what's going to happen an hour from now. Whereas in Japan, I never have that feeling. It constantly keeps me on my toes. And I think when I moved there from New York City, maybe the real reason I wanted to move was I felt it's a very mature 
seasoned old society. And so for me, going to Japan was like seeking out an elder. I'd enjoyed the exhilaration and energy and this future tense excitements of being in the United States. But I thought I've reached the age when I really want to learn how to live and what it all means. And I felt that Japan could offer that as well as anywhere. Mm. You said two things that maybe at first wouldn't necessarily coincide with each other. One is that this place knows me and I know it, and it's a mystery at the same time, right? That like as if yeah. one's sense of home could be wrapped up in mystery versus the idea that, that one knows it fully and therefore it's comfortable. Do, do you see what I'm saying? No, uh, yeah, that, that's beautifully observed. And I think you know, most of us have two homes. One is the place where we happen to be born. And the second is where we really find ourselves and, and where we discover something in ourselves we never knew was there. And it can be through a relationship or a profession or, or through a, a destination. So I think Japan, in that sense, was my chosen home, not the one that just was a matter of circumstance, but that was a matter of affinity. And it's an interesting thing, too, that in this case, home has nothing to do with belonging. I probably mm. belong very much to England, which is where I'm sitting right now, but, but uh, I don't think of it as my home. And I will, I will always be a foreigner in Japan and an outsider, and yet, nonetheless, it deeply feels um, like home to me. Like, like, as I say, something strangely familiar. So I remember when I first decided to move to Japan, my Indian sari-clad mother <laughs> rolled her eyes and said, oh, this must be your home in the past life. And however <laughs> you choose to explain it, I think all of us know we have these affinities that, as you say, are very mysterious, but they're nonetheless maybe more real than the things we can explain. You talked about at that phase of life wanting to maybe sink into a sense of tradition. And I know that tradition is, is something that's so important in Japan. Can you explain the role of it there and maybe what attracted you to it? Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, I was seeking out, as I said, this old culture. And my third week there, I met my wife from Kyoto, who's Japanese, and all she was drawn to was California, a sense yeah. of freedom and, and the future tense and, and, and possibility, um, and being freed from history. But I felt that having grown up in the West, I needed more of that sense of tradition. And I remember one of the first surprising things I learned when I arrived in Japan is that it's the polite thing to do to ask somebody how old she is, because the older, the better. And then you know how deeply to bow before that person. Wow. Um, and so in some, you know, I was coming from, from California to some extent when I moved to Japan, and I felt in California many of us are trying to be as young and, <laughs> and, and full of energy and enthusiasm uh, and future as possible. But in Japan, which is a very hierarchical place, really the older the better, because age connotes wisdom, um, maturity, and experience. So apart from being very different from the US, which I was leaving to go to Japan, uh, it, it did speak for the sense that you know, tradition may be more important as an anchor and a guide than endless possibility. I was leaving the world of endless summer for a place that understands the importance of autumn and, and winter and the cycles of all the seasons. Mm. Oh, that's such a beautiful story. I mean, that idea of of bowing to someone in, with more reverence as they, as they grow older really strikes me as something really fascinating and, and profound. I, I wonder if there's any other traditions that you were observing there or you still observe that carry some type of meaning for you. Well, the, Japan has a very strong sense of community, and maybe at some level that's what I was seeking out when I um, left. You know, I'm, I tend to be a rather isolated person, as you said, traveling around the world by myself, and maybe something in me sensed that I needed to learn about family and community um, as well as uh, tradition. And it's also a, a society that expresses its wisdom by saying very little. And I felt that growing up in England and the US, I'd been trained to speak quite a bit. And mm. really what I needed to learn was how to listen. And that was something I thought I could learn. By going to Japan, I could learn how to listen, how to be invisible, and how to be part of a group rather than trying to push myself forwards, which I think is what I was encouraged to do um, when I was growing up in England and then moved to, to the US. Hmm. So community obviously plays a huge role there. How do you see community play out in a way that, that feels maybe distinct from someplace like California? One interesting phenomenon is if you were to visit me in my apartment in the suburbs of the 8th century capital of Nara, as soon as you get off uh, at the bus stop, there's a map right there showing the 
the home and the name of everybody who lives in that neighborhood, which mm. is really a way of saying each person is defining herself by the whole. Each person is going to lo look after everybody else's children. Um, this is an entire unit, and everyone has to be very conscious of the unit, which is the reason why in some ways, although I would gladly live in Japan for every day of my life, I would never want to be a Japanese because my, my Japanese wife and my Japanese neighbors are subject to very intense social pressures and a sense of responsibility in terms of the, an awareness that everyone's looking at them and they have to look out for everybody else. Whereas as a foreigner, I'm lucky because I can partake of all the blessings of that, but much less is expected of me. So I'd say an intense sense of uh, responsibility to everybody around you. Mm. Where do you think that comes from? I mean, you, you've remarked before on the fact that that Japanese society knows that that bad things can happen fast, that things can change. Do you think that this this interlocking network is the sense that there has to be some kind of communal reliance on each other? Well, I love that perception. It hadn't struck me before, but but I think you're absolutely right because you or I, as individuals, are perishable, very mortal, mm. but the whole lasts much, much longer than we do. And if you're part of a community, you do have the assurance that it's been going on for maybe hundreds of years before you and will continue um, for maybe hundreds of years after you're gone. And I might have said to you before how I think of Japan uh, as almost like a symphony orchestra with everybody playing her part perfectly to create this beautiful harmony. And part of the beauty of playing a piece by Bach or Beethoven is the sense that it's going to keep going even if you don't. And so you're, just as you said, you're, you're becoming a part of not just something larger, but something much more lasting and um, even even eternal, perhaps. Well, it's so it's so fascinating comparing it to the United States because I mean, this is just this is what I've observed anecdotally. If if someone is able to say get more money or buy a bigger house, they put up bigger walls around them, or they move themselves further out of the city, more into the country where they don't even know the names of their neighbors. In fact, when I lived in California for years, I I did not know the names of the people next to me. I mean, for six years, really. And it occurs to me just what a stark difference that is, this idea of kind of the, the rugged individualist that I think still exists in almost every American versus showing up to a map and seeing all of your neighbors' names on them, right? Exactly so. Um, my parents have been in the same property in California for 55 years. I don't, I don't know any of my neighbors and yeah. I've barely ever seen them in, in all that time. Um, and uh, again, I noticed this very strikingly during the pandemic. So even now, you know, I'm talking to you in, in July of 2023, I would say 60 to 70% of the Japanese around me are fully masked. And that's not to protect themselves, but it's to protect um, everyone around them. It's, again, from that sense of responsibility. And I remember a few months ago, a German doctor visited me in Nara, and we were walking around. And because he was a doctor, he knew that um, the, the risk of COVID was very, very small um, at this point. So he took off his mask. And then he saw everybody around him was masked, and he realized they were masking in order to put everybody else at ease. And so he quickly, though he didn't need to, put his uh, mask on because he realized this has nothing to do with self-preservation and everything to do with reading the emotional needs of everybody around you. So just in the tiniest ways like that, as you say, it couldn't be further from California, which I think of as a wonderfully individualistic place. Um, here, you're, you're part of a net. You know, then Buddhism, they speak of Indra's net. Um, each destiny is dependent on everybody else's destiny. And I think uh, without formulating it, the Japanese, I know, live that Buddhist principle pretty much with every breath. Right. And another principle that seems to come up very related to that is the idea of impermanence, which is such a big part of Buddhist philosophy. Did you feel that impermanence is something that's kind of taken seriously or it's just part of the way that that culture operates? It's part of the way the culture operates, and it's deeply woven into every fabric of it. You know, every April, everyone races out to see the cherry blossoms precisely because they last for only um, 10 days. And mm. if they were to last even for a month, there'd be none of the excitement and none of the sense of grabbing the moment before it flees. Every November, all my neighbors uh, put on their best clothes and flock out to see into the gardens and, and parks to see the rusting maple leaves. Exactly the same thing. Um, and, and even the bells in Kyoto 
toll in a certain way that's telling people, as my wife will explain to me, <laughs> this doesn't last forever, make the most of it. The fact that nothing lasts is the reason that every, everything matters and every moment matters and one can't take uh, anything for, for granted. And so in a curious way, I would say that one of the things I love about living in Japan is that it's very, very quiet, but people are always going somewhere and they're always doing something. And at that level, they're very in deeply engaged in life. You don't see people slacking around or sitting around. Um, and, and that's partly a sense of responsibility, but I think it's partly, as you suggest, the result of this sense of um, not wanting to waste a moment or feeling it's irresponsible to waste a moment because we don't know what's going to happen the mm. next time, the next moment. And I think it also leads to a sense of serenity. Again, I remember when the pandemic began to make itself felt, I kept on thinking of that um, Japanese truth, which is a universal truth, nothing lasts forever. And I think my Japanese neighbors who at some level have been so used to weathering tsunamis and fires and earthquakes and war weren't so rattled by this sudden change of events because they knew it's not going to last forever. And then conversely, when they're very happy, they know that the happiness is not going to last forever either. So things are on a much more evil, even keel, not suddenly exhilarated and not suddenly depressed because of the notion that uh, that sensation never lasts. Mm, yeah, well said. And and you've alluded to the importance of older age there, and I think that it's it's fair to say that in, in the U.S. and in California, we, we've become a real ageist society, and there's a real question of what does one do with folks that grow older, or what does that person who themselves is growing older do themselves? And you, you've talked about this idea in Japan almost of a second childhood or the importance of growing older. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes, I, I think it especially applies to men. So in my little neighborhood, I've been playing ping pong on an almost daily basis with my neighbors for the last 19 years. And I'm the only foreigner there. All of the rest of them are Japanese. And what quickly hit me was that most of these men in our club are the ones who were working amazingly hard to revive the Japanese economy in the years after the war. And I think traditionally, and still to some extent now, the role of a Japanese man is very much to support the family economically, even if that means being hundreds or thousands of miles away from his wife and kids. Uh, he's a breadwinner and he has to just send the money back for his wife to take care of education and household expenses. So to us, it's startling how little contact traditionally a Japanese man between the age of 23 and 65, how little contact he has with his wife and family. He's working very hard. He's waking up at six in the morning, making a long commute to work, working all day, and sometimes you know, fraternizing in the evening, which is part of his work, and returning home at midnight. And finally, when he's free of the workplace at, let's say, 65, suddenly he gets to enjoy all those human pleasures um, he didn't have an opportunity to savor before. And so one of the most warming sights in my neighborhood is everywhere I look, I see men in their 70s or 80s walking around with their grandkids, holding them by the hand and mm -hmm. enjoying their grandkids' um, presence and company the way that they probably never had a chance to do with their own kids. And again, it strikes me too in, in the ping pong club, I'm with these men who are often quite senior executives, very, very elegant and serious in the workplace, 77 years old, 82 years old. And every time they win a point, they jump up and down, they clap. And it's as if it's this belated release of all the things that they couldn't do when they were very seriously committed to the workplace. But it's a delight to witness uh, and to be part of. Again, I think the women are more of an evil, even keel because sadly they aren't given still as many opportunities in the workplace as the men. So their lives between when they're 40 or when they're 80, probably not so different. But for the men, it's suddenly the chance literally to claim some of the freedoms of youth, which they haven't had since they were 18 years old. Mm, interesting. Um, would you say that a woman's life is quite distinct from a man's life in Japan? Much too much so. Mm. <laughs> My first year in Japan, I wrote a book about Japan, and it was really about the predicament of women. Um, and to this day, I think Japan lags far behind all the countries in the developing world and many other countries too, in terms of public opportunities for women. And the cliche is if you're a young woman and you graduate top of your class from Tokyo University, the best university in the country, you're most likely 
condemned to serving tea to men for the rest of your life. Mm. Um, really, and so these days, more and more young Japanese women who are full of intelligence and enterprise and energy, wisely moving abroad, joining foreign companies, claiming for themselves the opportunities outside the Japanese context they could never have within Japan. But it's, a, it's shocking to me that it really hasn't improved in the 35 years I've been here, been there. And every new government says we're going to make a new policy to empower Japanese women, but it, it hasn't happened. And, mm. and Japan has been very slow to reform. I mean, again, Japan, I'd say, is, is behind the rest of the world in its treatment of foreigners and its treatment of the LGBT community, of its treatment of everybody sort of a little different from, from the mainstream. But from the Japanese point of view, they would say we've created this seamless, harmonious society in which everything works very, very well. So on our own terms, we're, we're doing flawlessly. Why should we change? If it ain't broke, why fix it? So for that reason, um, it's been very slow to change. Economically, Japan's really suffering from its reluctance to change. Culturally, it's really gaining because it's still 1,000% Japanese and now more and more foreign visitors are, are coming to enjoy Japanese culture because it's not like anywhere else. But, you know, this really goes back to one of your earlier questions. The name for Japan, it's often called the land of wa, which means harmony. So since the 7th century or earlier, Japan has been based around that notion of a larger harmony. Um, and so individualism really hasn't made many inroads in all these centuries. Mm. And this is, I think, really, in a sense, the, the shadow side of deep tradition, right? Which is that on one level, you can create this harmonious society where the roots go down thousands of years. But on the other hand, and this is where, right, I'm sure your gaze turns to California, there can be uh, opportunities in other places that are more forward thinking, that are more egalitarian. And, and I think it always just poses this, this kind of difficult question around these wonderfully rich traditions. Perfectly said, which is why when I met my wife and I was I met her in a in an ancient temple in Kyoto and I was so eager to participate or to partake of that ancientness ancientness and wisdom and all her thoughts were how can I escape Japan and get to the place of uh, of youth and fun. Um, I have a Japanese uh, stepdaughter and a Japanese stepson and as soon really the day she graduated from university my daughter moved to Spain and lived there for nine years speaking fluent Spanish and now fluent English so I think she implicitly sensed she had everything to gain by being away from Japan. The day he graduated, my son joined Japan Airlines and went into the very traditional uh, Japanese workplace, which um, treats men very well. And um, you know, he followed the very conventional course. And probably in many households, you would see um, that that bifurcation. Yeah. And you know, I think I was asking my wife uh, earlier today, knowing that I'd be talking to you, what she thought about you know the position of the elderly and, and Japanese society. And she, as a Japanese, said, oh, my worry is we're becoming more Californian and the family structure is less strong mm. than when she was growing up in the, in the 1960s. And I think you know, many people in the U.S. have heard about this striking phenomenon where people in Japan will actually rent family members because their true family members are no longer nearby, that an elderly couple will go to an agency and rent a young woman so that every Sunday afternoon, the young woman will knock on their door and say, hi, grandma, hi, grandpa, I've really missed you. Let's have a nice you know, meal together because their own granddaughter <laughs> has moved to California. Uh, and to us, it, it, it's, almost, it's almost unimaginable to make that leap of faith whereby you're prepared to take a stranger as your own daughter or granddaughter. But for them, it's a very practical way of dealing with a real problem, which is that um, for all these centuries, Japan has depended on the closeness of family members, and now perhaps that closeness can't be um, relied upon. Mm, yeah. Uh, let me see if I can formulate this by, by starting with an analogy. I think you and I like to talk about the different spiritual traditions in the world, and I think there's been this idea you know, in the last 10, 20, maybe more years, that one could almost pick certain aspects of certain traditions and incorporate them into one's life, or they could pick certain traditions. And I think that can work well in certain ways, but I think there's another question of maybe one has to actually sink fully into a tradition 
or in this case, let's make uh, the, the tie to Japan as a culture to be a part of all of these traditions, to get really the full sense of them, to really breathe in the life fully and not just pick little threads of things. And I, I wonder how you sit with that idea of, you know, can we say, oh, let's take a few bits of Japan and bring them home, or does it not quite work that way? Do you see where I'm getting with this? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with this idea of how we, how we kind of take parts of things and whether or not that's possible or not. I think I do agree, and I think that's very well put. And that's kind of salad bar way of thinking. Let's take, mm -hmm. a, you know, as you say, we've often spoke about religion, and let's take a little bit of uh, Sufism and add some Zen and mix it with the better, wiser parts of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I, I don't think it works. It's like taking a little piece of Koto music and suddenly putting it in Mozart. It's mm -hmm. going to make uh, disharmony all, all round. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm um, a, a victim of that, I think. And I think the one, my one response is to try to keep myself honest and to tell myself, even after 36 years of living in Japan in a small community with a Japanese wife and a Japanese daughter and son, I will never be Japanese. And I can't claim really to have incorporated much of Japan into my life. I'm keen to learn what I can about it and, and translate it into my rather Western framework. But um, as you say, it can't be ripped out of uh, context in the same way that the Japanese may be fascinated by American sense of individualism and freedom, but I don't think they can just take it and try to implement that um, while living in, in, in Japan. So you're right that I think it's a, it's a cautionary note that uh, it's wonderful in the global age we're all exposed to so many different cultures, but we shouldn't be too quick to assume that we can actually, as it were, inhabit or possess those cultures. And perhaps, in a sense, you're voting with your two feet. Even if you don't feel Japanese, you decide to still call that home, which I think is sending a big message about the place that you want to be and the values that you care about. Yes. And it's, as I said, I, I, it's like seeking out an elder. Here is somebody who has a lot to teach me and um, in precisely the areas where I'm probably weakest. But I can't claim I ever will be that teacher or that I will ever you know, have the same DNA and inheritance as that teacher. I mean, I've recently been thinking of, of um, Japan as a great source of grandmother wisdom, as it were. And, and I remember growing up um, in England and the U.S., I was sad that I had very little access to my grandparents, and I think that's true of a lot of us in a place like California. Um, traditionally in Japan, the grandmother would be actually living in the house, and the children growing up would learn probably more from her than from any teacher or spiritual sage, or let alone their, their parents. And so that's a wonderful thing that you see in the traditional societies uh, of the world, even if it's fading a little bit. So I'm glad to go partake of a society um, that has... Uh, grandmother wisdom. Mm. Well, finally, just to return to something you said very early on, which is the idea that we have kind of our birth home, but then we have a chosen home or a place that feels like uh, who, who we are or who we want to become. Um, do you think in a certain sense that we should each explore that idea that maybe our sense of home may shift towards something else as we grow older, that there's some wisdom in trying to find that place? What do you think? There's some good fortune in being found by it. I don't think we need to force um, ourselves into it. And I have many, I know many people who are living in the same house where their generations have lived, maybe in, in Colorado, and are very happy and they have a very precise and anchoring sense of, of home and tradition, which is wonderful. But I do think that all of us have these affinities. And if we're lucky enough to meet that person or place who strikes that chord of unexpected familiarity, um, that's probably something important that we should, you know, we should not turn away from that, which is why when in, in around near the airport in Tokyo on a brief layover, I suddenly felt the sense of recognition in Japan. I thought, I have to go back and explore what this is about. I can't just go on living in New York City because there's maybe something even richer. So I suppose what I would say is just being open to the understanding that home takes many forms and uh, may come to you in sudden moments in your life and those are moments to, to explore and at least to complement your sense of home and deepen it perhaps. It's always such a, a wonderful pleasure to be joined by Pico Iyer here on Life Examined. Pico, thank you for just spending some time with us as always and uh, I've loved just hearing about your experiences in Japan and, and being able to share those with all of us. So thanks for the time. Thanks for all you do, Jonathan. 
Still to come, a Cambridge University professor explains the philosophical concept of ikigai. That's all ahead on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Pico Iyer talk about his love for Japan and the many traditions and characteristics he's observed while living there for the past 36 years. So are there other tenets that are unique to the Japanese? And what can we adopt into our lives? Researcher Isa Cavadegia says Japanese philosophy is very much guided by the principles of humility, gratitude, and the practice of something called ikigai, which involves mastering certain skills and staying in the present. Isa Kavadejia is a professor of medical anthropology at the University of Cambridge in the UK and the author of Making Meaningful Lives, Tales from an Aging Japan. Isa Kavadejia, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you, Jonathan. It's very good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Let's start with your fascination with Japan, and in particular, your the way that you've gone about discovering these aging populations and how they have kept a sense of meaning and happiness. Take us back, I'm sure this was years ago, but when did you think there was something really worth studying in Japanese culture? What drew you into that place? Thank you for that question. That's a good one. I think um, there are many different ways to tell that story. And on, on one hand, I've had a, a link to Japan for for a very long time since I visited um, during high school years. Um, so I've been to the, to Japan a few times and had a sort of private interest in it. I'm an anthropologist, so over the years as I studied anthropology, I became more and more aware that one way to understand what humans are and what humans do is to be faced with um, a group of people who do things somewhat differently than we do. And that helps us to think about those issues that we take for granted in our own lives and in our society. So at that point, it seemed like going to Japan and doing my doctoral research there might make most sense. Um, Kind of a good balance between familiar and and unfamiliar, um, generating lots of questions, but also feeling a little bit at ease there. Tell us about some of the people that you ended up spending quite a bit of time with and some of the questions that you were asking along the way. So I think it's worth um, kind of setting the scene a little and saying that I did most of my research in the city of Osaka. And Osaka is interesting. It's the second largest city. It's part of this huge conurbation that spreads from Kyoto, Nara, Kobe. It spans four different large cities that are virtually seamlessly blending into one another. So if you catch a train, you you really would be in an urban environment throughout all that space. Mm. Um, At the same time, Osaka is not Tokyo. Um, Tokyo, like every other metropolis, being the capital city, dominates most of the accounts. you know, anthropological, but other also journalistic accounts, popular accounts, um, while also being quite a different kind of place in a way that New York is quite different from the rest of the US or the way that London is not the same as the rest of the United Kingdom. So um, it seemed interesting to go to Osaka as an urban environment rather than say, a, a rural area, in remote area in mountains. Um, and get a sense of how it would be to age in the city where social relationships are changing. Um, it is not quite the same thing as um, aging in, in a depopulation area in the mountains where there are fewer and fewer people. Um, but it is also uh, not the same population density as it used to be before. So Osaka is a very interesting place for that reason, because it's a, it's a kind of a different case study altogether. And at the same time, a, a very warm uh, place where people are, are um, seen as largely gregarious and friendly and open to encounters with, with new people. 
So as I as I arrived in Osaka for the first time in 2008, 2009, when I did my research on aging there, uh, I've picked this area in, in the deep south, you could say, which was a, a merchant area. Uh, and one of the rare, really old areas of Osaka that didn't suffer much bombing. So there are lots of buildings that were original from pre-war period um, and kind of couched in between these uh, completely new, shiny, um, high uh, skyscrapers. It was seen as a very nice place for elderly to live because it was easy and accessible, as they themselves described it. Um, as one of the arteries of this place was uh, a shopping arcade, an old-fashioned shopping, shopping arcade, where small stores were aligned on each side of this, lining each side of the street, and there was a, a canopy above them. Um, what that uh, the, one of the reasons why older people often said that this was a really nice place for them to live was that unlike going to a supermarket where you can quietly do your, all your shopping by placing your items in the shopping basket, what this shopping in the shopping arcade experience meant was that one would stop at a butcher shop and then stop at a green tea shop and perhaps walk a little bit further to the place that sells rice and in the process had to speak with a number of shopkeepers who mm. after a while knew your name, but also run into many people from the neighborhood. So the slight inconvenience of this uh, process was actually seen as a huge uh, benefit of living in this space, especially for an older person and kind of maintaining social links and social ties. So that brought me to my central question of the research, what happens as the entire parts of the city, as entire populations age, and even the shopkeepers themselves are aging and perhaps some shops are closing? How does it feel to age in a place which is itself marked by such um, temporal processes and um, affected by you know, being surrounded by other people who are also aging and passing. What does it mean to maintain social relationships uh, if many of the people who are new in the youth are no longer around? How do older people then preserve a sense of social network and a sort of safety net that they might need to live well? Uh, and how do they craft new social relationships? We don't tend to think of older people as those who are kind of driving the processes of social change mm -hmm. and, and crafting new social relations, but that's exactly what they were doing. And I think that was, that was the bit that, that really fascinated me. Mm, yeah, no, amazing questions. And, and also kind of a, a very vivid picture of trying to imagine this with you. So one of the big themes that, that you stumbled upon here may be tied to the fact that there was still this fabric of social relationships or not, but, but you kept coming across this, this state of gratitude. You almost talk about it as an attitude of gratitude. C can you talk and explain that for us a little bit? Yes, I think gratitude is particularly interesting um, as, as an attitude that people have cultivated um, both towards their past and the present. And I came across this because I was very interested in the question of hope. Uh, hope and hopelessness were, were kind of themes that came up in numerous conversations. And inc uh, increasingly, as in the Japanese society, people became curious about the vision for the future. What will the Japanese society look like over time? How can young people have hope against this landscape of aging society? Uh, how can young people have hope to um, get good employment and issues of that kind? And older people themselves brought this up often. Um, but they themselves were not necessarily as anxious about aging, especially those very much older old in their 80s or 90s, I suppose because they already have arrived there. So they're no longer worried what the older age would bring, but we're kind of trying to make sense of it. As I was asking people to tell me their life stories, one of the really striking features was this moment at the end of their life story. And sometimes I met with them several times to give me their story. And, and so the end might happen three or four meetings in. Then they come, they reach the end of their story, and there would often be this moment of pause 
where clearly they were contemplating something. After which they would say, I'm grateful for all that has happened to me or bring up some other aspect of gratitude to even even in relation to the challenges that they have faced in life even in relation to someone who has caused them problems perhaps and this moment and reflection of gratitude really caught my attention as a way to understand how to orient oneself to to their lives so the question i had was how can older people think about hope, which we tend to understand as a future-oriented uh, disposition, if uh, if they're approaching the end of their life? How, how does that futurity feature in their lives? And in fact, it seemed to me that gratitude was precisely one of those modes that allowed them to face the future, because reflecting on the past which had brought many challenging things with them, but also brought many unexpected moments of good, unexpected forms of kindness, numerous instances uh, of goodness in people or, or positive affect, people realized that, well, somehow the future will be all right. If, if we exist in a world in which these kinds of things can happen and do happen, somehow the future too will be all right. So what makes gratitude particularly interesting is this kind of orientation towards the, the past and the future at the same time. It gives us hope for the future when it is possible to reflect on the past in, these, in this way. Mm. And Japanese language itself is quite interesting in that it attunes one to these moments of entanglement with others um, and and gratitude. It is virtually impossible to say that you just did something without also somehow implying how others were involved in it. So if I were to say that I worked in uh, this community center for the elderly, in English I can simply say I spent uh, 14 months working in this community center. In Japanese, the only correct way to say it would be to, uh, to, to indicate that I have been given an opportunity of working there. Now, mm. that already in foregrounds the role of others in this process and attunes me to the gratitude, right? It makes me aware that someone else allowed me, someone else gave me this opportunity, and this was, this was not just something that I did as a, an active agent. It also involved many others to whom I have to be grateful. Mm. So also explore this this idea that we come across in the West. And there's been lots of books written about it of of ikigai. Um, wh- what is it, and, and how do you think it pertains to things that you saw or just Japanese culture in general? Ikigai is one uh, one of those concepts that really has captured uh, imagination of many people within Japan and abroad. Um, Ikigai really could be translated as something like that which makes life worth living. Um, And it's not just having a purpose in life, but having that continuous dedication um, to something. Um, And so it is very much tied to one's social role. uh, And very often um, it is something that has to do with that social role. So for a parent that might be a child or for an employee of a company um, that might well be the company and its prosperity. Um, but also more more recently, um, as anthropologist Gordon Matthews have, has written quite extensively, uh, there's also more of a focus on the individual pursuits of self-cultivation. Um, and uh, those kinds of ikigai where when one focuses on something that is one's passion also becomes quite important for, for leading a good and a meaningful life. Um, in that sense, it seems that um, ikigai is, uh, is a little bit different than, say, thinking about happiness, whereas happiness is somehow always future-oriented and therefore a little bit like a horizon that as we approach it always slightly recedes. Mm. Um, ikigai can sometimes be quite a modest pursuit. It can be focused on something very small, some small hobby or small small set of interests or even um, a form of attention. So being able to observe the 
the birds in the garden through the window and being able to do that every day as something that just simply gets you out of bed can be seen as a form of ikigai and th- that very kind of modesty in it uh, seems to seems to be quite important so it's kind of looking out for those small things in life that that kind of get you going and on the other hand uh, to have a a sense of dedication to do something and to do it do, do it well and do it over time so that's where it overlaps with this idea of chantosuru or doing things properly that really came across as quite important in in the research that I did so older people that I had a, a privilege of spending time with often showed me how to do things properly and um, kind of instructed me if I were to serve tea how to serve it properly with proper attention and we might then tend to think of that kind of Mm, attitude as quite formal, right? Formalistic and perhaps superfluous, perhaps unnecessary. So often to those who who are new to Japan, that seems as a as slightly burdensome uh, way of doing things. But one thing that I think that I noticed about it when I spent a lot of time with older people is that it's also a kind of mastery. And a lot of things can be done masterfully and well and beautifully. Um, and that could even be attention to small things like putting out the rubbish properly, c- sorted into proper categories, mm. uh, or, or folding an orig- origami box for the table where people can dispose of small bits of rubbish. So it can be small and mundane things. It doesn't have to be just really glorious artistic pursuits like making the most beautiful calligraphy, which of course it also pertains to. Mm. Um, but just to give you a sense of, of, of a scope, what made it really effective for them, um, I think, for, for leading kind of a, a good and meaningful life is anchoring one in the moment. When, when one masters something, um, it is possible to do this activity uh, well without interruption, without the, without the frustration of something that we are not doing quite well yet, we haven't mastered. And at the same time, it is engrossing enough that it holds one's attention. Uh, and in some ways, this is similar to perhaps what you're uh, familiar with in uh, Mihai Chikshen Mihai's work on, on, on the state of flow, um, where the activity is neither too difficult so as to be frustrating, nor too simple uh, so as to be boring. Uh, it is that kind of middle ground, which is very enjoyable. And, and I found that that, uh, that attitude of, of doing things properly really opened up a lot of activity to this, um, to this feeling of being grounded and anchored in the moment. It's also really beautiful to think about how that concept can strip away the certain mundane aspects of just doing things throughout the day. Like the way you said, for example, that someone might sort garbage correctly to put it on the street and that there's a right way of doing that and that there can be a pride in the way one does that and a process in the way that one does that. You know, I I, I find that really important. I mean, how many things do we each do throughout the day that we just sleepwalk our way through to get them done as fast as possible? So, right, I mean, there is something, I think, kind of profound and and I think in this concept. Yeah, I agree and and I think there's also a, n- a nice way that that branches out towards what we tend to think as inanimate world of inanimate objects where whereas mm. here the 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 attention given to them is um you know kind of cre- creates a particular kind of disposition towards towards things in which also things not only have their appropriate well way of being handled like chantosuru properly um but also perhaps require some kind of gratitude so when disposing of things people would often kind of thank things for their service mm. <laughs> um and uh, or or trying to find a good home for an item uh passing it on to someone who who needs it. And this way of being in the world, I think, is quite helpful in a society where there is a lot of objects and there's a lot of consumerism. So it's almost like a little counterbalance to to treating things as, by definition, disposable. Mm -hmm. 
you've also written a lot about uh, the giving and receiving of care and the concept of, of reciprocity. Can you say a little bit more about that in your research? So I think the the care, as I understood it, it was it was the idea that you know we tend to think of older people's people as recipients of care often, mm. and and sometimes, uh, especially in media accounts, you can find you can find the description of of elders as predominantly dependent or frail. And what struck me uh, in the research that I was doing, even among uh, fairly old uh, people in their 80s and their 90s, is that they themselves were not only just recipients of care, but were very caring and involved in numerous caring relationships. So not only did they cultivate these broad networks of care, um, which would scaffold other people's lives, but also themselves were caring in many ways. So I became interested in the idea of um, idea of circulation of care. And I think this is a kind of a different take on reciprocity where it's not just thinking of caring dyad, care giver and care receiver mm. as, as two people that live in isolation. And it really links well uh, with, with our previous conversation of well-being as being socially embedded, right? So it's not just about healing the individual. And in, the, in this case, it's not just about thinking about the, the caring dyad, uh, but as, as trying to see how that caring relationship unfolds in a much broader social context of of multiple caring interactions. So it's not just about reciprocating the care to the caregiver, right? Sometimes that may happen over time. Sometimes, of course, uh, uh, who is a caregiver now will be a care recipient later. So there's a sense of that kind of reciprocity over a longer period of time. Uh, but also what was peculiar, I think, among the group that um, that I spent time with was that they were cultivating entire communities of care where they perhaps might look out for each other and suggest, you know, give recommendations. Remember that someone needed a recommendation for a hairdresser, look out, notice mm. a good hairdresser, be able to recommend it. Small gestures like that of thinking, attending and being able to offer advice, suggestions, guide, guidance, um, all in the hope that perhaps one day when they need care, it's not so much that the person who they gave it to specifically will receive so not that kind of reciprocity, but there will be something in place in the caring community, in this broader network that will help them stay afloat. Yeah. <laughs> um, so kind of a little bit more distributed form of, of reciprocity, perhaps. Well, it's been really wonderful to be joined by Isa Kavegia, Assistant Professor of Medical Anthropology at the University of Cambridge in the UK, also the author of Making Meaningful Lives, Tales from an Aging Japan. Isa, thank you so much. This was, this was a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Jonathan. It was a real pleasure to speak with you. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody, and now we would love to hear from you. What are your takeaways after hearing from Isa Kavadesia and Pico Iyer? Are there any aspects of Japanese philosophy and culture that you would want to bring into your life? Join us on our Facebook page. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm your host, Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for tuning in. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next week.